I want to uh, report a total of 538 new cases of COVID-19 in British Columbia, including nine epidemiologically linked cases, bringing our total to 24,960 people in British Columbia with COVID-19. All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. That, of course, the voice of Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday announcing the latest COVID-19 numbers as the second wave of the virus continues to surge across British Columbia with the numbers rising. Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday issuing those sweeping public health orders. Time to mask up across B.C. Mandatory mask order in British Columbia is something she had resisted for many, many weeks here now. But now here we are. It is mandatory to mask up in indoor public spaces in the province notable exception there public schools we'll be talking about that on the show today the mask up order on the program lots of other orders here as well restrictions and on travel and public gatherings and i also think very significantly for a lot of people too a ban on in-person religious gatherings so do not attend a church temple synagogue mosque under this order that is tough for a lot of people at this especially at this time of year I think about my own parents who, who are very faithful. I grew up in a religious home myself. They're both passed away now, but I know that would have been tough for them, and it's tough for a lot of people. So let's uh, start off the show by talking about that right now. My guest is Levi Minderhout. He's the BC manager for the Association of Reformed Political Action Canada. They're a Christian uh, advocacy organization. Levi, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Did you guys see this one coming? I know there'd already been restrictions on the on the size of the congregations allowed into churches and that kind of thing, but a total ban on on gatherings announced yesterday by the provincial health officer. Is that something that you guys anticipated might happen? Uh, well, we didn't know exactly what was going to happen. We couldn't predict the future. Uh, we were. I was being optimistic that there would be some freedom allowed for Christians and other members of faith communities to continue to worship. Uh, so, for example, in the last couple of weeks, uh, Dr. Henry had placed some restrictions on social gatherings in the Fraser Valley and Metro Vancouver, and that yeah. specifically said that worship services and religious gatherings could continue to up to 50 people. So I was glad that she made that, uh, that distinction in those local health orders. So I was hoping that would continue on these larger general health orders, and I was disappointed that uh, that was not the case. Okay, let's have a little listen to some more of what Dr. Bonnie Henry had to say yesterday on religious services. Here she is. While places of worship are to have in no in-person groups uh, services for this period of time, um, we and I've had the privilege of meeting with a number of our uh, a large number of faith leaders from around the province, and this is important. And they understand that we need our faith services more than ever right now, but we need to do them in a way that's safe. And with the community transmission that we're seeing, and the fact that we have seen transmission in some of our, our faith-based settings, we need to suspend those and support each other and find those ways to care for each other remotely. Okay, as Dr. Bonnie Henry there, encouraging people to worship with uh, online services. Uh, Levi, you mentioned that you're disappointed in the order. What do you think about what she had to say there? Uh, I understand and I sympathize the fact that she understands uh, or seems to understand how important this is to, to many people of faith. Um, but my, my reaction there is that uh, I don't think she fully understands how worship services are fundamentally different than other types of social gatherings or activity. So for many people of faith, worship services are essential to their, to their spiritual health. Uh, 
and even emotional and mental health there, and that they're also protected by Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We have the freedom, it's the first one listed in the Charter, the freedom of religion and also the freedom of assembly. And so the fact that uh, worship services are restricted in the exact same way as other, other activities, other social gatherings that aren't as essential and don't have the constitutional protection, that was something that was disappointing for me. Okay, do you think it could trigger a lawsuit? Um, it very well could potentially be. I've heard, been in, I've had contact with many pastors and faith leaders on this particular question and always asking, is it something that we can consider? And uh, I'm not in charge of launching that action. I don't know what faith leaders have in mind, but I would not be surprised if some decide that this is this is something that goes too far. 50 people in a worship service was something that was already uh, onerous for many churches and were worrying yeah. some for many churches, and they decide, okay, we'll abide by that, but now that there's right. a complete ban on in service, uh, perhaps maybe there will be a challenge. Yeah, the, the previous, you mentioned the previous limit was 50 people in a, in a place of worship, and I, I got some emails from, from priests and ministers over the past few months saying, like, they thought that was unfair. You know, I, I remember talking to one priest I know who said that, uh, you know, I, I'm a p- parish priest in a huge church. Huge. Like, it's a huge church, and you, 50 mm-hmm. people, and you put 50 people in there, uh, they can spread out a lot. Um, so, I mean, in your, uh, in your experience, was there, if people were able to social distance while they're attending a religious, religious gathering, do you think that would adequately mitigate this, the, the risk of spread? I mean, is there, has there been any spread of COVID in churches and synagogues? Oh, I'm glad you asked that question. So to my knowledge and, uh, Bonnie Henry should know this better than I, but I, I'm only aware of one single instance where COVID has spread in churches, and you're, I think you're exactly right. There are many worship services, many religious settings, they have space for hundreds, if not thousands of people, and I believe that you could space 50 people or even potentially more than 50 people in different areas in that setting and still be able to uh, prevent the spread and the transmission of COVID. The number of people isn't the only way to stop um, that transmission, social distancing, hand washing, many other uh, restrictions also can contribute to that. Okay, my guess is Levi Minderhout. He's a, a Christian advocate. And Okay, Levi, I, I imagine that among people who attend church or have faith in their lives that uh, I suspect there would be like divided opinion on this maybe, you know? Like I, I was just thinking about my own parents who both passed away now. They're very religious and attended church a lot. And uh, um, I suspect that if they were still here, they would say, okay, I kind of understand this. I kind of understand that, you know, the risk of spreading this virus kind of would take over and, you know, maybe we could attend mass online you know, a virtual service online. Like when you say, you know, why do you, why do you believe it from your perspective that it's important for people to physically gather? I believe it's important to physically gather because in that way, worship is, is much more real and much more uh, present. So like, for example, um, if you are married and you have a, you have a spouse, imagine being only able to talk to them over the phone or a virtual setting. I mean, it's, that's great. We have the technology to do that, but it's not nearly the same thing as actually being in person with them, having direct conversations, direct interactions with them. And so I think it's similar as well for worship services. Yes, we can still get that spiritual nourishment and some of the benefits that participating in worship services has online, yeah. but in person is much more fulsome in that. 
Okay, Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday also announcing there would be some exemptions for the rules around places of worship. Let's have a little listen to what she had to say on that. The exceptions will be those important events, funerals and weddings, and ceremonies such as baptisms, which may proceed in a limited way with a maximum of 10 people, including the officiant. There are to be no associated receptions inside or outside your home or at any public or community-based venue associated with these important celebrations. The exceptions do include other activities that happen with COVID safety plans in some uh, in these gathering sites, including um, medical uh, uh, group sessions, uh, sessions like uh, NA and AA meetings. Okay, that was interesting to hear her say that you could still have an AA meeting, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting potentially on, on a church space. But she also mentioned there, Levi, about... Uh, services, essential services would still be allowed to proceed with its uh, funerals, weddings, baptisms, that would still be allowed to go forward with a very small number of people in attendance. What, what are your thoughts? Do you think those are reasonable exemptions? Well, I'm, I'm glad those exemptions exist um, in, in, the, in the grand scope of things, but I would argue that all worship services are essential, both for the spiritual well-being and health of congregation members and for emotional and uh, mental health as well. Um, I would like there to be an exemption for all worship services. Just just to pro- provide a little example here, uh, my hockey league sent me an email yesterday that we are continuing our hockey play. Based on these new orders, we can continue to play now starting tomorrow. But starting on Sunday, I can't go and worship in my local congregation, even though I'll yeah. be more distanced from people in my congregation, from my church, than I would at my hockey game, for instance. So I think that there's a fundamental disconnect of like what she's providing exemptions for. I'm very you happy think- that she's allowing that those to continue, but I would yeah. extend that to all of worship services. Last question for you. Do you think there might be some congregations or churches that defy this order and continue to, people will continue to gather anyway? Uh, perhaps that would be up to the discretion and the decision of each individual local church. Um, I can't uh, look into a crystal ball and see what each of them are going to do, but I know that many churches do take their, their authority, their responsibility, their duty to have worship services and attend for the spiritual well-being of their flock. They take that very seriously, and I know that many churches, I'm sure that many churches and other faith organizations will also be yeah. looking very, very carefully at this and come to a decision on their own. Thanks very much for coming on this morning. Hey, anytime. Thanks for having me. All right. Welcome back to the show. Covering the health orders issued yesterday by Dr. Bonnie Henry, including that ban on in-person religious gatherings there. You heard my conversation there with Levi Minderhout. He thinks there should have been an exemption for in-person religious services. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898. Richard in Nanaimo. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Uh, hi. I just I just want to say I've been listening to your program there, and I honestly don't think it's right to uh, ban religious ceremonies. I've been to a couple of church, church churches in the last couple of months, and uh, they've actually, everybody's got a six-foot distance rule. They reduce the amount of people that are allowed in the church, that they bring into the churches, and they no longer sing. Right, and, right. Uh, for a lot of them, like, uh, I won't go into denomination or anything like that, but for a lot of them, in the Bible, it actually says, you know, you're supposed to abide by the rules that the government in places. The only rule that the government in places that you are not to abide by is if you are stopped from celebrating your religion. 
And so if the churches well, actually stop and decease, then they're going against the fundamentals of their religion. Right, but they're not stopping you from celebrating your religion, though, virtually, though, right? I mean, yeah, not still, virtually, but yeah. in, in person, like a lot of people. Yeah. Like, uh, what? Uh, I, I'm an alcoholic, and I recently yeah. uh, got saved by Jesus. And I, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, so I'm learning a lot about it. But we definitely need the, the religion is almost like an AA because it it helps you knowing that there's somebody there that will bring you through the the problems you're having. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate the call. Let's go to Matt in Langley. Hi, Matt. What do you think? Hi. I agree with uh, the previous caller and with uh, Levi. I think we should be allowed to have in-person worship services. It's kind of ridiculous that... uh, Bonnie Henry is telling us it's non-essential, yet we can go to a movie theater. I mean, our church has been uh, practicing and trying to follow guidelines as much as possible. We're social distancing, we're contact tracing, we're following the guidelines. There's separate parking areas, separate doors, um, and yet now she's saying, oh, it's non-essential. Well, actually, it is essential. Sorry, but I think a lot of people are going to say, you know what? Sorry, but this goes too far, and we're not going to be obeying this order. Okay, Matt. Thanks for the call. Well, we'll we'll see if people uh, if any churches decline to go along with it. Uh, I, a buddy of mine is a priest, and uh, he told me he said the same thing. He said that the church I got is huge. People are spread out. They stop singing in the church services during mass because that's one of the ways that the virus can spread. If you have groups singing in a in a close confined uh, like uh, area like a church, that would definitely spread the virus. But you know, you can still have your church service or religious service without this without singing for sure. Rita in Port Coquitlam. Hi. Hi, Mike. I like your show. I listen to it every day. Um, Thank you. We're in a pandemic, and Dr. Bonnie gave us so many chances and notices and warnings, and it's just for a while longer. You can read the Bible or the Koran or the Torah at home. You can telephone or FaceTime. And I know of a disabled elderly woman who listens to sermons on tape that are delivered to her at her home, has done for years. Yeah. So I just think people not wanting the rules to apply to them for, for this and that and this and that, it's okay for this but not for them, they, they're, I think they're just being selfish, and it's just mm. for a, a little while longer, and then we'll get through it all together. Right, yeah, it's only for a couple of weeks here, and it might be extended after that. Thank you for the call. Roger in Surrey, or sorry, no, let's go to Jillian. Jillian in Abbotsford. Hi, Mike. Yeah, Hi. I'm, I've been a Christian my whole life. We have a huge family. We attend a huge church in Abbotsford. Um, I do believe it's an essential thing, but also it's gathering as families, and we've had to uh, not gather with all of our children and put that aside as well. I think if it extends for an, a, a long period of time, that would be um, really unfortunate, and that would not be healthy, but it also says scripturally to lay our lives down, like the, the greatest love is to lay our life down mm. for one another, and so you know, I'm willing to lay it down for a couple of weeks for the greater good of our fellow man. And so I'm, I can do that for a couple of weeks. I can not go to church for a couple of weeks um, to help the greater good, to help society, and then hopefully pick it up again in a okay. couple of weeks. And I think we can all do that. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about mobility pricing and the debate in Vancouver. This is part of Vancouver's Climate Emergency Action Plan. The city declared a climate emergency back in January. Now the city is backing that up with an action plan. They are putting their money where their mouth is. Oh, wait, maybe it should be they're putting your money where their mouth is. 
is you better hang on to your wallets here, Vancouver drivers. If this thing goes through, this is nearly a 400-page plant, and when you go through this thing, it is like fees, taxes, charges, is all the way through it almost on almost every page. There's talks about fees. You got mobility pricing, parking permits, new carbon taxes. Of course, it's all designed to get people out of their cars, get them to take public transit, ride a bike or walk instead in order to reduce Vancouver's carbon emissions. But I'll tell you what, this thing has been passed by Vancouver City Council. It's going on to a study phase now. I'll be shocked if this thing goes through. I think they're totally tone deaf with the economy the way it is right now coming out of this pandemic. Now they're talking about walloping people with these kind of fees and taxes. This is unbelievable. Now have a listen to this here now. This is Matt Horn. This is the guy who wrote the climate action plan. And here he is explaining to Simi how the how it would work, the, the uh, mobility pricing would work. The honest answer is right now we don't know exactly how it would work. We've, we've looked at evidence in other jurisdictions and see it working really well to manage congestion and reduce pollution. Um, what exactly would be the best system in Vancouver is the work that has to happen over the next couple of years. Okay, yeah, they don't really, I guess, know how it would work yet. They're going to hit you with charges, though, that's for sure. He says this would be good for everybody. Have a listen. Got another clip of him there. A big part of the plan is improving walking, rolling, cycling, and transit options so that for people where that is an option, those become safer and more viable for people. I recognize that's not going to be an option for everybody, but the other benefit we've seen from transport pricing in other jurisdictions is that for people that do need to drive, you get faster and more reliable travel time. So there's a, there's a benefit that comes with the system for drivers as well. Well, okay. So he says if you're still driving and you're paying the fee, at least there'd be less traffic, presumably, so you get around quicker. Okay, let's talk about this now. My guest is Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Brad, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, you you have uh, been speaking out on this one. You say that this is a bad idea. Give me your take on it. Why do you think that way? Sure. Well, first off, the infrastructure that is in place that some people, proponents of mobility pricing, think that uh, needs to be paid for has already been paid for by taxpayers. If you've paid gas tax, if you've paid carbon tax, if you've paid the sale tax, if you've paid parking tax, if you've paid property tax, or if you've paid income tax, you've already contributed to the cost of transportation infrastructure throughout this region. And right, so right. It, this infrastructure has, has already been paid for. Those taxes are used to maintain this infrastructure. This uh, idea comes from proponents who think it can either A, be an additional revenue source, B, try to reduce uh, emissions, uh, or C, deal with uh, um, uh, congestion. Here, here's the yeah. challenge. If you are implementing this to try and reduce emissions, it has to be so punitive, it has to be so financially crippling that people have no other choice but to uh, not drive their vehicle. The, right. the problem throughout our region, if you look at places like Port Coquitlam, um, Pitt Meadows, Maple Ridge, Langley, uh, Abbotsford, Surrey, uh, Delta, quite frankly, the majority of our region, yeah. um, what is the alternative? This idea is so detached from the reality of how the vast majority of us have to live. We rely upon our vehicle. The trips that people are taking with their vehicle aren't optional trips, Mike. They're to get yeah. to work. 
They're to get kids to school or activities. Right. And, you know, I just think that there's such a elitism and, and classist uh, mentality to this that if you're wealthy enough that you can live in downtown Vancouver, you're off the hook. Or if you're wealthy enough that the, by some estimates, up to $3,000 a year that this will cost the average person, if mm. that's a drop in the bucket for you, and there's more space on the road to drive the, the bends, yeah. then I guess, yeah, it's no big deal. But <laughs> yeah, so for it's the regressive vast then. majority like- of us, it's going to hurt. Yeah, so it's regressive then, right? I mean, for some people, if it's three thousand bucks, it doesn't make even a dent in your bank account. Then you don't. What do you care? You just pay it and just keep on driving. But for most people, for most people, uh, three thousand bucks would be massive hit. So it's re- it's regressive tax. It, it, it's an absolutely regressive. Yeah, tax. yeah. But it's also a regressive tax with no alter with no alternative. Right. So, like when when they say, "Well, we need to get people out of their vehicles." Right. Okay. On to what? Show me, you know, come out to well, to the suburbs and and show me what people are going to get onto. Right. Well, sometimes, well, quite often, the defenders of mobility pricing will quite often point to other jurisdictions and say, "Look, it's working in other big cities. Like, primarily, London seems to be the one, the most popular example that people mm-hmm. cite." So they'll say, "Like, okay, it costs fifteen pounds or whatever to drive into downtown London, the congestion fee, and it's been successful in getting people out of their cars and reducing traffic in central London." I, I think where the the comparator there is really flawed is that London has a, a, a very mature rapid transit system and the underground the tube system that's been around for like 100 years and has been built up and is is completely developed for the entire entire metro region of london you can get anywhere on, yeah. on rapid transit they, we don't have that here it, it, it's such an asinine argument because the, the the comparison is not even relevant to our reality so yeah, yeah if you want to have some philosophical discussion about how you know, we should have this utopian system set up, then I guess that's one thing. But that's why I say this is so detached from the reality of our region. And and, and look at the, the most recent history of Metro Vancouver. What do we have happening in the last, say, 10 years or so, and, and still happening today, and will continue to happen throughout the future? We have more and more people having to move further and further east because... Right of affordability of, of real estate, of housing. Right. A- and so you, you already have a system of gross inequity in the region where the, the most expensive places to live are the ones that are best served by transit and have readily available options for the most part. Not perfect, but much better. If you're a working person, like the vast majority of us are, you have to go further and further out. Right. The transit is not there. You're reliant upon your vehicle, and now you're going to be punished for that. It, it just to me, it, it doubles down on what's already problematic about Metro Vancouver. Would you would you say at least give people the option before you wallop them for not exercising the option? So, for example, let's build out our transit system, give people the ability to get on rapid transit and get to where they want to go before you hammer them with fees and penalties for not taking a service that doesn't exist yet. Like, you know, maybe it's like cart before the horse kind of thing. Like, maybe we should build out the transit system first before you start inflicting uh, mobility pricing. Well, that that's a, a bare minimum, in my opinion. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, you, you'd have a different conversation then. I think there's still be some concerns, and I would still have some issues. But 
at least the reality on the ground for people is going to be different. This is the idea that gets cooked up by people who, I guess, drink their own bathwater and are surrounded by people who tell them how smart they are and have never ventured out of an ivory tower to see how most real people in this region are, are living and trying to make ends meet at a time when our right. province and people and families have been financially rocked. Right, but I know that I know you are not a climate change denier. You you would agree no. there there is an emergency, right? Would you agree with that? Climate yeah, emergency. We ha- okay. Scientists tell us we have to get our act together on on reducing carbon emissions, and there's a number of things to be done on that front. And, right. and it's not just all. It, by the way, it doesn't hinge entirely on just getting people out of their vehicles. Okay, <laughs> it, this is a a global issue that is requiring a global response. Well, speaking of that, like a lot of many people have pointed out that if you consider the emissions just in the city of Vancouver and then put that on a, a global scale, I mean, we're just like a, a speck in the ocean of, of global emissions around the world. So even if you did manage to reduce Vancouver's emissions a little bit, it's not going to make one whit of difference to, yeah, and, and, to climate and, change on the planet. And that's a fact. And, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't well, it doesn't mean like, reduce you know, our emissions. We, well, the, the other argument is you sh- we right? should lead, lead by example, right? Yeah, no, and, and, and look, I, I think that there's a balance there. Yeah, we need to do our part, yeah. but we can't financially cripple our people so we have, what, the moral superiority to say to the rest of the world, oh, yeah, but look at us, you know? <laughs> what, like, what good will that do in the long run if... We've turned our region into a, a playground for the very wealthy, where every you know working person it gets you know has to <laughs> live in hope, you know, or who knows where. Uh, so I I understand the need to address our carbon emissions, and there are many ways in which that can be done. There are, by the way, we're doing so many of them. You know, in Port Coquitlam, we're building multi-use paths all over the place. We're putting in sidewalks in areas that didn't have them before. You know, that work, of which there is lots to do throughout this region, encourages people, gives them options, okay? But it doesn't involve saying, hey, you know, in in the midst of a global pandemic, here's this new system that's going to cost you upwards of $3,000 a year Mm -hmm. for something that you've already paid for, uh, and by the way, there, there's there's no real alternative for you. Okay. Like, for that to make sense, in my opinion, you have to completely remove yourself from the shoes of, I don't know, 99% of the people who live in Metro Vancouver. Yeah. Mayor West, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Surrey's top cop now getting blindsided by a possible 25% budget cut for the Mounties in Surrey. Brian Edwards, he is the assistant commissioner of the RCMP in the city of Surrey. He's the top cop in Surrey right now. He says he got a report from the city outlining a 25% reduction in funding for the RCMP. Why would they cut the budget for the Mounties in Surrey that much? Well, it's to fund the police transition to a local police force to replace the Mounties. And Surrey says they are full steam ahead with a local police force in the city of Surrey. They've named the new chief constable for the local Surrey police force. Now, Norm Lipinski, a former 
Deputy Chief of the Delta Police Department, former Assistant Commissioner of the RCMP E-Division in B.C. He will be the new chief of the of the uh, local police force in Surrey. He'll be formally introduced at noon today. But let's dig into this now. A 25% budget cut for the RCMP in Surrey? Really? That's uh, that's pretty bizarre. Let's talk to Brian Sovey now, the president of the National Police Federation. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Brian. Good day, Mike. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot for coming out. What are you hearing about this with the budget for the RCMP in Surrey? Uh, I think it's uh, it's a shell game with respect to budgets, unfortunately. Um, you know, from day one, uh, the mayor and uh, their council have talked about no increase in costs or very minimal increase in costs. Uh, now we're at a position where April 1st is, oh, it's only four and a half months away. Uh, and we haven't even looked at hiring new police officers for the Surrey Police Service. So the expectation, obviously, is to have the RCMP carry on. But now they have to do it with a 25% reduction in budget. And I haven't seen anyone say, oh, Surrey RCMP, please reduce your service levels by 20% or 25%. Stop what, doing this or stop doing that. What would be the impact of a 25% budget cut on a police force? Well, it's massive. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you have to think it's it's one quarter. <laughs> So yeah. what are we going? What are we going to cut? Uh, are we going to cut traffic services? Are we going to cut uh, uh, crime and gang prevention? Are we going to cut guns and gangs? Are we? What are we going to cut uh, in order to meet that? Okay, Brian, you're the president of the National Police Federation, which is the the association of RCMP. You guys are trying to unionize the RCMP, correct? Uh, well, we have. Uh, yeah. July of last year, we were certified, so we are moving forward, uh, you know, negotiating a collective agreement, working on terms and conditions of employment, working on resource levels and uh, equipment for the membership. Um, that'll take some time, obviously. It's federal negotiations, and they move at a glacial pace, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, so I know you support yeah. keeping you support keeping the RCMP in place in the city of Surrey and not going to a local police force. I'm not sure it's possible to stop the train from leaving the station at this point. But wh what would you say? Like, what is your analysis right now of the situation with the move away from the Mounties and to a local force in Surrey? Can that be stopped at this point or is it a done deal? Uh, no, it's not a done deal. I mean, it can be stopped at any time. Obviously, the director of police services and minister of the solicitor general of the province, who is yet to be named under the, the new elected NDP candidate, the cabinet, can ultimately sit back and say the transition plan doesn't meet public safety for the residents of Surrey, so we're stopping this. Or they can exercise their authority under the Referendum Act and uh, ask the citizens of Surrey to have a referendum on the issue as to whether or not they want to proceed. You know, Times have changed since the mayor got elected and they have this mandate of uh, uh, going to municipal police service, right? We have COVID. We have a number of challenges. Uh, economies are in disarray all over the map. So one has to think, is this the right time to go full steam ahead, as they say, with this transition that's going to cost millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars? Okay. Why do you think a the RCMP would be better in the city of Surrey as opposed to a local municipal police force? Well, there's a number of economies of scale with the yeah. RCMP. So, A, um, uh, you know, you have the ability to um, deploy federal and provincial resources to major events. Uh, that's included within your contract. B, you have a 10% subsidy right off the top. Uh, and C, you have the experience in Surrey. Uh, and the crime statistics show that the Surrey RCMP, under-resourced as they have been, 
have been extremely effective in reducing crime. Crime severity index is at a 10-year low. Uh, the clearance rates uh, with higher caseloads per police officer are higher than other municipalities like Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, and Halifax. So the data shows that the RCMP is extremely effective in Surrey. Um, one has to wonder if a municipal police force starting from scratch would be that effective. Speaking to Brian Sove, he's the president of the National Police Federation. He supports keeping the RCMP in Surrey and not moving to a local municipal police force. You know, this budget cut for the RCMP in Surrey right now outlined in this memo that was obtained by Global News here from Brian Edwards. He's currently the top Mountie in the city of Surrey right now. And this 25% proposed budget cut here for the RCMP to help fund the police transition to a local force. I mean, this guy was totally blindsided by this. He he writes in this memo that the first he heard of this was in a city report. Uh, The proposed budget cut is $45 million cut in the budget next year. He says, I was not consulted during the budget processing. I don't have any information on how the city intends to implement a 25% reduction in the RCMP uh, budget. I mean, what does that say to you about the process here going forward that you got this guy's the top cop in the city and he doesn't even know what's going on behind the scenes with his own budget? Well, I think it's consistent with the entire process of this transition that we've seen from day one uh, is that there's a lack of transparency and a lack of input and a lack of consultation by those who are going to be impacted, whether it's uh, Brian Edwards at the helm of the Surrey RCMP or whether it's your everyday community group or your everyday citizen in Surrey. Um, you know, the entire transition report that was completed by Coopers and VPD was forwarded on to the province before any public consultation was actually done by the city and the results of the public consultation, which they didn't release until December of last year, um, showed amazing support to keep the RCMP. So one would have to wonder if that consultation in a transparent manner happened ahead of time if PricewaterhouseCoopers would have been made different recommendations. Okay, if the transition goes forward here to a local police force and they get rid of the Mounties in, in the new year, which appear, which obviously still appears to be the plan here from the city, uh, you mentioned that they still haven't hired any new officers for this local municipal police force. Do you think that's going to be a problem in staffing up a municipal police force in Surrey? I think it's going to be a big problem. Uh, you know, I mean, the RCMP did a survey of its membership in Surrey to see who would be interested in applying, not even knowing what the salary or the pension or the service or the holiday implications would be. And they found uh, just under 14% would be interested in applying. The majority of those RCMP members would prefer to stay in the lower mainland like Burnaby or Langley or such. So you're left looking at, well, where are we going to get these cops from? The Justice Institute of BC is understaffed, under-resourced, and can't accommodate six to seven to eight hundred new applicants in a year or two. So we're going to try and poach and pillage from yeah. neighboring jurisdictions like Delta, Vancouver, Port Moody, New West, BC Transit Police. That okay. creates a challenge for them. We continue to follow it closely. Thanks a lot for coming on today.
Thank you for having us. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the mandatory mask order that came down from Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday after many weeks of resisting a mandatory face mask order in British Columbia. BC's chief medical health officer yesterday said, we're getting one now. It is the law of the land. You must mask up in indoor public spaces in British Columbia now. Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday saying they're doing it for safety and to help businesses. Have a listen. Technically, this will mean mandatory wearing of masks in all indoor public and retail spaces, not only as a a, a workplace health and safety issue, as one of the mandates that we have had, but also to ensure that uh, owners and operators of these spaces have um, the, uh, the support behind them to ensure that customers are aware of this mandate as well. The use of the Emergency Act to do this will enable us to cover that overlap of workplace and public safety around this issue. All right, Dr. Bonnie Henry there yesterday announcing the mandatory face mask order for British Columbia. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Dr. Anna Wolak. She is a family physician and an assistant professor at UBC. She's a member of Masks for BC and Masks for Canada, doctors who support a mandatory mask rule. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Dr. Wolak, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay, we talked several weeks ago about why you think a mandatory mask order in British Columbia would be a good thing, and you must be very happy to, to get this or- to hear this order yesterday. Your thoughts? Well, it's very welcome. We, we certainly welcomed this order from Dr. Henry. Um, it was a long time coming, so better late than never. We do kind of wish that it had included schools from K to 12 and outside of just the high traffic areas, but you know what? This is a step in the right direction. Okay, how will it help? Will, will this help to bend the curve of COVID transmissions in the province, do you think? So the thing we've always said when we advocated for a mask mandate is that the mask mandate alone will not be enough. Be, British Columbians should not be just doffing on masks and going out and hugging everybody. This is not the case. It has to be used with social distancing, staying at home, minimizing all your gatherings, washing hands, staying, testing when you're feeling unwell and staying home when you're unwell. Hopefully, when, like we talked about before, the mask was like the last layer of protection that we had left to add. So right. hopefully all of this together in her package of, ma- of restrictions announced yesterday will help bend the curve. Specifically for masks, what's going to happen is that masks are the one thing that controls source transmission at the source. So, you know, we're covering up the source of the viruses. So hopefully that decreases the viral load circulating in the community as well. And that hopefully will bring it all down. Okay. How, what can you say to the public about how effective masks are? How effective are they in stopping the transmission of the virus? So there are numerous studies that have come out throughout this eight months that we've been in this that have shown that a mask mandate that proper use of masks and covering the source, covering up the source has led to a marked decrease in transmission, but it needs to be 80 to 90% use. There was a study that came out in October that was published in Nature Medicine that showed it's American numbers, but if there was a 95% mask use, proper mask use, the number of deaths that could be decreased was by 135,000. Wow. Even with just 80% use, it would be decreased by 90,000. So it is quite significant. 
Okay, Dr. Henry has resisted a mandatory mask order for a long time. You guys have been calling for one for a long time, and as many others have as well. And she finally kind of relents on it yesterday. One of the things that she had said is that there some people are unable to wear a face mask for a number of reasons. And she spoke yesterday, yesterday too, about exemptions to the mask mandate. Here she is. This does not apply to anyone who is unable to put on or remove the mask on their own. We know that there are people with certain conditions and disabilities in some ways that would make mask wearing challenging. It does not apply to children under the age of two. And um, we need to be aware that some people's disabilities or inability to wear a mask may not be readily apparent to people. Okay, does that sound reasonable to you, Dr. Wolak, that some people are unable to wear a mask for, due to a disability or other reasons? It does. It certainly does. And we've also said it, that there are medical reasons, but that's between the person and their physician. So they need right. to, if somebody feels that they need a mask exemption for medical reasons, they need to go and talk to their physician. And as a community, as as British Columbians, we also all need to understand you can't go around and think about see if you see somebody on the street and they're not wearing a mask, you can't think badly of them because there could be invisible reasons that they can't wear a mask. Yeah, and I know this is one of the concerns that Dr. Henry had as well, that she was worried about conflict. She was worried about people being marginalized or, or made examples of or, or picked on. Um, you, know, you mentioned like if you see someone walking down the street without a mask, where I guess the mandatory face mask rule would not apply if you're walking down the street. But what happens if, if you see someone in a store that does not have a mask on now? I mean, it's hard, right? Before, uh. and that's what one of the mandates, what we were hoping for with this mandate is now with the mandate, it'll keep those people who were like kind of on the shelf, uh, who are just like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's good for me, maybe it's not. But Dr. Henry hasn't ordered it, so maybe yeah. I don't really need to wear a mask. So it gets rid of all of those. It's like people are now like, well, now I need to wear a mask. So when you're going out now and you see somebody who's not wearing a mask, we need to reverse our thinking and think less of, oh, that guy, is being, that guy or girl is being selfish and doesn't want to wear a mask, but more of the, oh, that person might not be able to wear a mask for medical reasons. Let's, not, let's just make sure we still keep our distance from them and just give them their space. Okay, speaking of Dr. Anna Wolak, Masks for Canada, you mentioned that you were hoping to see the mandatory mask order extended to include BC's public schools, that's a prominent exemption of the mandatory mask order yesterday. What do you think of that? Yeah, we, we like I said, we had hoped that it was K-12 to and not just in the high traffic areas. But we all yeah. know that schools are basically a microcosm of society. So what's happening in schools, all these exposures we're seeing in schools, they're a reflection of what's going on in the community. So the hope is now that... Since there, will, since there is no mandatory masking in schools, we still need to keep the, the children and the teachers and staff safe. So hopefully by decreasing the viral load in the community around, around the schools, by wearing those masks, by preventing the source transmission, hopefully we do see those numbers reflected in the schools two or three weeks from now. Back to the show. My guest is Dr. Anna Wolak, Masks for Canada, Masks for BC, talking about yesterday's mandatory face mask order. Let's take some phone calls on it now. Elaine calling from Oliver. Hi, Elaine. 
Hi there. Hi. Uh, yes, I'd just like to uh, thank Dr. Henry. It's a big thank you. In our small town in Oliver, um, my husband works at the local hardware store, and yeah. they he was the only one uh, that wore a mask all this length of time. And um, the owner of the hardware store said, until it's mandated, he wasn't concerned about the staff, which is nine people, or the customers coming in the door. And it just, we have COVID in Oliver in small amounts, and I just think that it's better safe than sorry. And uh, thank you very much. Okay, Elaine, thank you very much for calling. I think what Elaine just described there was the uh, the tipping point of uh, this whole issue, uh, potentially in, in British Columbia, Dr. Wolak, because Bonnie Henry, in fact, said yesterday that it was feedback from the retail sector in particular that convinced her to go with the mask order. So exactly what this caller is describing. You've got a workplace where the uh, the manager is saying you don't have to wear a face mask. There's no public order. And then you've got some, you know, some people want to wear the mask and others don't. So maybe it's just better off to have a, a clear a clear direction from the health to the health officer to make sure everyone's on the same page. But your thoughts? That's exactly what we were saying, and yeah. I was, it's it's not just like retail owners, but also the shops. When Costco introduced their mask mandate, everybody has to wear a mask. The onus was put on the big businesses, but it's also on the small businesses. So the mom and pop shops, if a customer is coming in, they don't have that power. And the customer can come in unmasked, yell at their faces, scream abuses at them if they are vehemently anti-mask. And the small business owner is left with nothing to protect themselves. Same thing with, say, even the cashier at Safeway or your local grocery store. So a mask mandate makes it really clear, and it's a really clear message from the top. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it just makes it clear for everybody. Let's go to Benita in Arrington. Hi, Benita. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. I think this is fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. And it's so long overdue, man. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. Um, you There's a lot of people were looking for this for a long time, and it did take a while, but I think most people are supporting it. Let's go to Thomas and Delta. Hiya, Thomas. Hi, I got got two things to say. First of all, Bonnie Hedy, she completely dropped the ball in this. This should have happened six to eight weeks ago. If she couldn't see the mentality of what was happening in the rest of Canada and how that was impacting people, she doesn't know the people of Canada very well and probably shouldn't be in that that position. The second thing I want to say is this massive loophole that she's left open for people who are handicapped, you know that there's a certain demographic out there that's going to take advantage of that. Listen, if I'm a, if I'm a person who cannot wear a mask for, for any reason and I'm going out, I know that people are going to be looking at me sideways. They should have a, something to identify people if they're going to their doctor say, hey, listen, I've got a card. If you walk in in a store, I, I have a card here that says I can't yeah. do this, and here, and here it is. Because there's going to be that element... And I, uh, my wife works in healthcare. She dealt with it just yesterday. Some guy comes in for his appointment. Girl at the desk says, listen, everybody's wearing a mask. You have to wear a mask. He goes, I'm not wearing a mask. Cancel my appointment and walks out. That is an attitude. And it's not, a one, it's not onesie twosies. It's, not, it's okay. not just a couple of guys. Okay, Thomas, thank you for the call. Uh, Dr. Wolak, your thoughts? First of all, to be fair to Dr. Henry, yes, we have been calling for this for a while, but she's in a really tough position. 
and she needs to balance a lot of the needs um, of British Columbians. So um, we, we're big fans of Dr. Henry, and we really um, w- w- questioning her and how long it took. It's it's not something that we are advocating for. We're just happy that the mandate is actually here. And yeah. What about what? Yeah. Go ahead. No. Go on. Well, I was going to say, what about his point about, you know, could some people try to find a loophole and say that, say that they're disabled? I mean, if someone, if someone has a note from their doctor, is that what, is that what, are people have to going to have to walk around with a note from their doctor with well, an exemption? The, the, what we're really hoping is that people are not going to go and flood your doctors. Your doctors are, we are overwhelmed enough as it is. But, and your doctor may have already started having this conversation with, with you if they feel that yeah. you think you, we think you need a mask mandate. Uh, um, sorry, a mask exception. Yeah. Um, okay. When people, pe- people know, people, people, there are some people for whom even a note is not going to make a difference. Like yeah. they have their set in their beliefs. Hopefully they are fewer and far between. Okay, let's go to Jackie on the open line in Kelowna. Hi, Jackie. Hi. Um, Hi. This morning I was reading in a local paper of ours. Uh, This fellow writes in there and says, oh, I am never going to Costco again. I've been a member for over 20 years, blah, 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 blah. But I'm never wearing a mask, so they'll never have me as a customer. And I'm so happy because that's where I (laughs) shop. (laughs) 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 You don't want to wear a mask. Hey, Bye. See you later. And well, yeah. I mean, that's that's your choice. You don't want to shop there. You don't have to shop there. There's no yeah, log. Exactly. There's no log. But yeah. every other store is going to have have him wearing a mask, regardless. So where is he going to get his groceries and everything else? Like, are you yeah. dumb? Okay. All right, Jackie. Thanks a lot for the call. Hey, um, Doctor Wolak, what if you uh, if you're uncomfortable wearing the face mask, feeling claustrophobic or whatever, whatever your reason might be? What about with those face shields? Are they a good option? So the face shields do not provide the same protection as a mask. You'll see okay. um, healthcare workers wearing it because we're trying to protect against the droplets going into our faces. But yeah. when you think of covering your nose and your mouth, which is the source of the, the virus, there's no protection. It'll leak out through the sides and it just splatters mm. on, on the face. So right. n- unfortunately, no, that's n- it's an added layer of protection on top of the mask. It does not replace the mask. Okay, Jason on the phone line in Richmond. Hi, Jason. Mike, as usual, I love the show. I just don't understand this. I mean, I, 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 I watched a couple of these pressers the last week. I, I just still hear and see a lot of loopholes, and it's very gray. But, you know, earlier on in the week, they actually allowed a couple of, I guess, citizens call in when she was having her little chat on Global there. And there was someone that said, look, I work in retail. I got to deal with, you know, jackasses every other day. What, what can I do? And Bonnie specifically said, look, we've given you the guidelines already. And if you, Mike, you know this, if you walk into any mall or store, everyone has those pieces of paper. You have to wear your mask and it's, you know, brought to you by the British Columbia, blah, 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 blah. I, I just, I, this is so long overdue. And, yeah. you know, for her to use that one word mandate, like she almost chuckled literally. And the one thing I just want to quickly add here, Mike, is I've got two kids. I've, I've kept them home. I've said this before. But for her to say, look, I don't wear a mask when I'm in my office. Well, you don't have 27 other kids in your office there, Bonnie. Thanks, Mike. Okay. Okay. Thank you for the call. Well, a lot of people will say it was long overdue. It is here now. Hopefully we see the results as we go forward. Dr. Wolak, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me.